0: Um, What we're going to do right now is we're going to get into the book of Galatians. We started several weeks ago through a series uh, in the book of Galatians. And uh, we basically called the series, it's kind of important, especially in terms of what we're going to be looking at here today. Uh, We called the series, The Gospel According to Freedom. And the reason why we called it that is because the word gospel essentially means good news. and freedom, we typically understand what freedom is, but oftentimes I think the way that we understand freedom is askew. In other words, we oftentimes think of freedom as being... Able to have the entitlement or the right to do whatever it is that we want. And that's the problem. That's really not true freedom. True freedom from the Bible is freedom to stop doing what you're bound to do in order to serve God. That was what true freedom is. Freedom for the Jews when God took them out of the slavery in Egypt and brought them, was about to bring them into the promised land, was not a freedom so that they can do whatever they want. It was not a freedom from God, it was actually a freedom for God. Because prior to being in Egypt, they were really not able to serve and worship God because they were bound. They were slaves. Quite literally, they were slaves in Egypt. So it was a great opportunity in which God rescued them and saved them and delivered them so that now they could be free to serve God. And that's really what the idea of freedom is that Paul is going to be emphasizing in the book of Galatians. So what I want to do right now is we're going to jump in. I want to read the passage of Scripture that we're going to be taking a look at. And then I'm going to uh, pray through it, and then we'll get to work on trying to understand what it has to say to us uh, for today. So Galatians chapter 4, uh, about verse 8 is we're going to start down to about verse 11. If you guys don't have Bibles, if we do have Bibles in the back, please feel free to grab one. If you don't own a Bible, please take one and keep it. Uh, it's not stealing when it's given to you, so we want you to take one. If you know someone who needs one, take one. Our gift to you guys. Verse 8 says this, Formerly when you did not know God... You were enslaved to those that were by nature not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather are known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days, months, seasons, and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. This is sort of a desperate plea on Paul's behalf, you can almost sense the frustration in his voice, you can almost sense the loss of willpower to keep going with this group of believers. But Paul keeps writing, we've got a whole another two chapters left to go. And, but Paul keeps moving forward with them because Paul's main goal is to lead these people back to freedom. So with that being said, I'm going to pray and then we're going to get to work. God, we need your help. God, we just confess the fact is, is that Uh, we are all prone and all bound to just enslave ourselves. We don't mean to. We never intend to. We never expect that to happen. But God, we oftentimes just find ourselves, in a lot of ways, just innocently going out, engaging in something that promises to give us life, promises to give us hope, promises to give us completion. And by the time we get into it, we begin to find out that rather than having a power over it, it exercises dominion and power and tyranny over us, and we're slaves. So God, we, we need your help, first and foremost, to really point us back to Jesus. Secondly, God, we need your help to be able to pinpoint and identify any areas in our lives uh, in which there is any type of slavery or idolatry that we need to confess and deal with that's interfering or interrupting with the freedom you so greatly desire to give to us. And that you have already actually given to us through Jesus. So help us to see Jesus fresh and anew in what he's done for us on the cross. So God, we ask for your help right now. We ask all these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What I want to do this morning is I want to basically jump right in into what we're going to be taking a look at. And really I want to kind of ask the question um, that Paul sort of starts off with that we looked at in verse 8. Is really kind of asking the question, what was life like Prior to coming to know God. So, what Paul wants us to understand is that there are basically two different types of people in this world. There are those that are with God, those have had some sort of relational interaction with God where God has sort of demonstrated himself to them and they've responded accordingly. And then there's those that have not really known God, they don't know God. And so, the question that we want to sort of leap off into with is kind of the question is, uh, what was life like before we came to know God? Uh, The irony of the story in the book of of Galatians is that what Paul is doing is writing to a group of people that were, in essence, at one time in slavery to the elementary issues of the world. Uh, The Greek word there is stoikia. I'm not going to get into a lot of the detail as to what that means. There's a lot of ways in which people try to describe that, Um, but basically it it boils down to the fact that these people were enslaved or in bondage to this, and then they met Jesus. In other words, they were liberated. Their souls were set free. They met God. Uh, We can even use the word, they were saved. They were saved. What were they saved from? They were saved from bondage. They They were freed from the slavery of bondage. That's what salvation is. That's what salvation was in terms of the children of Israel being taken out of Egypt. You can actually refer to what happened in Egypt after the Passover as a salvation move of God. Whereby the kingdom of God broke in and God exercised his dominion, his sovereignty over Pharaoh And lovingly set the people of Israel free. It was a salvation moment. God set them free. God sets people free not into a way whereby now we can do whatever we want, because in essence, doing whatever we want is what ultimately ends up leading us back to slavery. God sets us free so that we can serve Him. That's what leads to life. That's the irony. At the end of the day, you can basically say this all of us are slaves. Every last human being in life is a slave. All of us. The problem is, is that you are either slaves to things that actually exercise tyranny and dominion and oppression over your soul. Or you're a slave to the living God. Paul uses, he says, I'm a bondservant of God. That exercises kindness and mercy. And when you fail God, he doesn't torment you. He forgives you. That's a good God. That's a good master. Slaves to idols and false gods, when you fail them, they don't forgive you, they torment you. They mock you, they guilt you, they manipulate you, they control you. So what Paul is trying to say to this group of people, that it experiences freedom from slavery to a former type of idolatry, to understanding and experience freedom through Christ, now they are actually going back to a type of religious moralism. That's the problem. A group of people came in and said, look, the way to be truly Christian is you follow the laws of Moses. You adhere to the basic celebration days. You follow the Sabbath, the way that we or the Jews celebrated the Sabbath. You engage, according to chapter 5, in circumcision. You get your males circumcised. And this is how you become truly Christian. Um, and what God will do is he will accept you, he will, he will engage with you, you will have a relationship with God based upon following these rules, regulations, and laws. And what Paul's writing back to them, he's saying, no, you don't get it. Going back to a system that's already been outdated is silly. It's like, basically, the best example I would give you would be, let's say, for example, you started, someone gave you a Macintosh computer, right? You have a brand new Snow Leopard run, driven Macintosh computer. It's absolutely amazing. It's almost like you're in heaven, right? Not quite in heaven, but almost like heaven. Uh, at least not like in hell, like being you know, a PC user, but you're in heaven to some degree. And let's just say you're using this great computer, you enjoy it, and someone comes along and says, look, you know, what you need is, is I'll give you a brand new computer. And you're like, sweet, I'll, I'll take a brand new computer. And they give you a brand new computer, and, it, and it's, not, it's, not even, it's not even Windows 7. It's not even Vista. It's like Windows 3.1, right? And not only that, they're, like, they're trying to encourage you, like, this is amazing. This is so good. This is such a great computer. It's got a 386 processor in it. You're like, really? And, and you're like, not only that, but it's, it's got a floppy drive, a floppy drive. You're like, those little floppy drives, three and a half inch floppy drive. You're like, are you kidding me? Um, and not only that, it's, it's better. It's, it's, it's better in every particular way that you can imagine. This is, it, it doesn't even have word on it or pages which is even better it, it doesn't even have word it actually has word pad you're like so i'm going from a, an, an incredibly fast mac computer to a 386 processor to a floppy drive from usb whatever to firewire to something that is is just completely far inferior in every way shape or form paul's like that's exactly what going back to a religious traditional moralism is all about you're going back to something that, that's really futile, it's foolish, it just doesn't work. It doesn't work in any way, shape, or form. I'll give you another example. It'd be kind of like building something. When you build something, oftentimes you'll see the scaffolding on the outside of a building, and they're building this thing. And, and like what, once the building's done, they take the scaffolding down because there's no need for the scaffolding. It's finished. You've already got a completed product. But Paul's basically saying it's almost like you guys went back and rebuilt the scaffolding And now it's obstructing everything. It's ruining everything about the building. The aesthetic beauty of the building is lost behind this horrible looking scaffolding. You guys have gone back to something that just doesn't, it's silly. So Paul's saying, you guys, the story of the Galatians is you are free from a form of spiritual slavery and bondage to freedom in Christ. But now because of religious moralism, religious traditionalism, you're going back to reestablishing the scaffolding going back to just a plain old pc computer that's life that's horrible that's bondage paul says i don't want you to go that route i want you to stand free in the freedom that you were made in christ and you need to continue to be aware of the various things that will come and try to re-enslave you lest you fall back into a form of slavery why is this such a big deal because at the end of the day we're all slaves and god wants to set us free God really is actually working for our freedom. This is why Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, we'll get there at some point in weeks to come, says this. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. So Paul's very forthright on this. that He's like, look, this is, this is what God has done for you. He wanted to set you free. And you're going back into various forms of slavery. And his whole point is like, this is not... This is not good in any way, shape, or form. Earlier in the passage, he says that it's it's, it's like someone has bewitched you guys. If this was a modern day translation, he would basically say, are you on drugs? What has happened to you guys? Are you on crack? How can you be doing this? It doesn't make any sense. You're making foolish decisions, going back, taking you backwards into something that is far inferior to what God has already given to you. This is bottom line the way a lot of Christians live. It's the way some of you may even today might be living. Not in the freedom of Christ. That's where you can find joy in God. But you're bound by various types of religious mentalities and ideologies and concepts. And God wants to set us free. The first thing I basically want to again note is that really what was life like before we came to God? And in short, Spiritual slavery is the answer. Take a look at the verses. Again, we just read verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those things which are by nature not God's. Verse 23 of chapter 3 says, before faith came, we were held captive under the law. We were imprisoned. Verse 3 of chapter 4, he says, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. I think Paul's talking about two different types of groups of people here. One are the Jews. They were basically... Before faith came, held captive to the law. The law was sort of their schoolmaster, which was ultimately to lead them to Christ. It was God's way of hedging them in, protecting them. They weren't fully free, though. They weren't fully free. There were certain rules, regulations that God placed around them to hedge them in. Not completely free. That's why Paul earlier uses the analogy of saying that, look, in some ways, you guys were like sons that were underaged, meaning... you, you may have, maybe a modern day example, let's say that you're 14 years old, mom and dad are extremely rich and they have a car ready to give to you the moment you get your driver's license. It's your car. Can you go out and drive it? Are you free to drive it? No, you can't. It's not your car. You don't, it doesn't belong to you yet, but one day, one day when the time is right, mom or dad will give you the keys to the car and that car actually becomes yours. You can fully enjoy and the, the right and the pri- or the privileges of driving this car that was now gifted to you. Paul basically says the same way. This is the way the Jews were. For many hundreds of years, they were sort of, uh, they were, even though they were sons and daughters of God, they were still sort of in bondage to sort of this principle of the law that was over them until Christ came. And when Christ came, they were given the keys to the car to have freedom. So the second group of people are Gentiles. And these Gentile people... For the most part, everything you can imagine in ancient Greco-Roman world with regard to uh, idolatry and things of that nature, that's what these guys were bound to. That's what they held to. That's what they were basically in some sort of uh, idolatry or bondage to. This is the idea that really at the end of the day, we all find ourselves to some degree, way, shape, or form, we're bound by something that governs us or controls us. There's this one line in the movie Inception, really at the very beginning, Leonardo DiCaprio says, it's, it's almost prophetic. All right, you ready? Here's what he says. He asks this question. What is more resilient than a parasite? Or, what, or he says, what is the most resilient parasite? He says, a bacteria, a virus, an intestinal worm. He says, an idea. Here's what he's saying. An idea, if it's planted in your head, it controls everything. So huge. Because that's exactly the way that we live, is we are governed by these ideas, False doctrine would be the way the Bible would describe it. All of us have false concepts, false ideas of who God is. And it's those ideas that bind us. If you see God as an angry judge who hates you, you will always be in fear of God. You won't feel freedom to go run to him and love him. You will will always feel afraid of him. You always feel like you are not performing properly. You always feel like that you are living in a realm of underperformance before God because you have this idea that literally is a bondage. It's a form of slavery over your head, over your mind, over your life that's governing you. I've talked to uh, married people before that, let's say, for example, that maybe at one point in their lives, maybe uh, you know, the, the guy had some sort of an affair and even five to six years later, a woman might live in this fear of him doing it again. And I've sat down with guys like this and I've asked him, are you, are you doing anything like that? Even though the woman might be in this radical fear that it's happening. And he might say, no, not at all. Absolutely not at all. In fact, I'm, I'm in a Bible study. I'm connected with guys. I, my life is an open book to anybody that wants to ask me. But because she has this idea, it's like a parasite. It's living off of her. It's feeding off of her. It's sucking life off of her. It's taking upon it life of its own. And it affects the way those people live oftentimes. Any types of ideas that have control over us that is not God, that is not biblical, that is not from God, oftentimes control and destroy us. And they take away our ability to live and have freedom. That's the idea that Paul is trying to drive home. Let me give you an example. I was reading this the other day. It was kind of a little story about John Locke. Uh, he was a you know, philosopher, a mastermind. He basically said this little statement that ultimately was brought up into the Declaration of Independence. He says this little phrase, a long train of abuses. That's a little phrase that he uses and actually is, is brought into or carried over into our uh, Declaration of Independence. i want to read that little section to you out of the Declaration of Independence. It's really interesting. It's really insightful because in a lot of ways, the guys that started our country understood exactly what I'm trying to communicate to you. Here's what they said. Next slide. It says, prudence will dictate that governments long established should not be changed. All experience has shown that mankind is more disposed to suffer while evils are being done than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they're accustomed. Here's what he's saying. Most people, by nature, even if they're living under some sort of oppression, They just simply succumb to it. They just deal with it. They just learn to live with it because they don't know how to get out of it. This is the point that I'm making. All of us are slaves. All of us are slaves. Outward forms of government are the most obvious, tangible, visceral types of examples we can look at and identify with. It goes on to say, but when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, It is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for the future security. So it finishes with that little section basically saying it's really the duty of a group of people that begin to identify the sense of tyranny and despotism over a person or a group of people. It's their duty to somehow throw that off, to to rebel against that type of dictatorship. In that case, in the case of our country, it was England, and their oppression over the founding fathers of this nation. They says we, we can't live like this anymore. We've got to get rid of the tyranny and basically become our own thing. But here's the irony of it all, and I'm just simply asking this based upon simple world opinion. When worldview comes into picture and they ask, and oftentimes ask questions, how does the rest of the world view America? Do they view America operating in a way of freedom, liberty, and justice? Or do they view America, for the most part, as a means of oppressing? It's an interesting thing. This is the big issue that's going on in our world today. A lot of people look at America. They're like, America comes into countries and they oppress. It's an interesting irony, isn't it? I'm just simply stating it's the way of a matter of opinion that, that's oftentimes viewed at America. So the irony is we were basically birthed as a way of rebelling against oppression. But those that try to rebel against oppression can very easily themselves become oppressive. It gives root to the fact that there's a bigger problem in our heart. When we look at this concept of slavery, when we look at this concept of spiritual abuse or spiritual slavery, it's very easy for us to identify it, especially on a global level. For example, it's easy for us to think about people in our, in our you know, history books or whatever that live like this. We can think of like Paul Pot. We can think of, you know, in, in you know, various places like in Rwanda, Mogadishu. we can even think of like Hitler. We can look at a guy like Hitler and be like, man, that guy, guy was definitely the picture of spiritual oppression and slavery and oppression trying to destroy other people's lives. But here's the real issue that oftentimes never really gets addressed because we can look at someone like Hitler and sort of look at that and think, well, that's not me. Therefore, I'm not as bad as Hitler. But the problem that we have, that often as we fail to do, is we never trace back far enough why was Hitler that way? I mean, Hitler was a guy that obviously was ruled by something. He had something ruling him, some sort of idea, some sort of ideology, some sort of concept was governing him. The Bible calls those idols. Those idols were ruling him, controlling him, leading him to make certain decisions. And it just so happened to be that a guy like Hitler had the financial backing, he had the political might, he had the military strength. He was able to do what he was able to do, not just because it was up here in his head, but because he also had the material means by which to accomplish it. The simple reality is that most of us, perhaps, would do the exact same thing if we had been given the same amount of power, might, money, and opportunity. Because we don't have the same power, might, and opportunity, we just simply relegate ourselves to ruling our little house and our couch and our television And treating spouses and treating people in our lives like those little people that we want to exercise control and dominion and oppression over. In other words, because we ourselves tend to be oppressed and in control and enslaved to something, we have this tendency to try to enslave other people. Is this making sense? The Bible's answer to this, the reason why this happens like this is because the Bible describes it as that all of us, by nature, are being controlled and ruled by things that are not God. The Bible calls these things idols. And this is the whole idea that where he's really trying to drive at and trying to get to. And so what I want to really kind of jump into now and take a look at next is basically three premises that I want to sort of assume As we move into this, Um, and that all of these things are basically based upon how the Bible describes it. They're all three assumptions that we just got to simply accept as how the Bible describes the way things are. First of all, the Bible describes that really that all of us are idolaters. In fact, I would even go on to say that the word idolatry or the fact that we are idolaters is the Bible's description as to what is ailing us as a culture, as a people group, as humanity. It's what ails us, all right? Let me give you a quick little example. Um, Genocide. People that have, for example, in Rwanda, there's genocide, these things that ended up happening where people would sort of exercise uh, race control and and trying to get rid of other races. At the end of the day, the idol that sort of drives that group of people is the fact that they think their race is the superior race. And therefore, because all of the races are inferior to them, that race is the greatest, the strongest, the most highest ultimate goal or accomplishment or ideology on the planet. Therefore, anything else that's inferior should be moved out of the way. That's what ultimately ends up happening. It becomes an idol. Race becomes an idol. All racism is an idol. That's why people that, say, are white, who look at other people of different races with attitudes of anger, hatred, and just, you know, passion and seeking and try to bring about destruction... At the end of the day, what is in their heart is this understanding or this idea in their mind that their race is the best. This is one of the reasons for most class distinctions. It's the rich think they're better than the poor, or the poor think they're not as sellouts or as evil as the rich, and there are these distinctions. At the end of the day, there are these idols that we have in our hearts. John Calvin was right when he described the heart as being a factory that produces... Idols from his youth. We're skilled at it. Every one of us have a different set of idols by which governs us. So we can't look at everyone and just be like, oh, that idol is my idol. But the first assumption that I want to basically make is this is that all of us are really at the end of the day idolaters. I want to basically try to understand how all this happened. In the very beginning, the Bible basically describes God created all things, he created mankind, placed mankind in the garden. And Adam and Eve were basically given all things, a garden, it was beautiful. God basically, in essence, uh, gave mankind and that they were made to love God and to rule over all creation. And yet because of sin, Adam and Eve, as well as us, we love what's made more than God. And then in turn, in an ironic turn, we become ruled by creation. Let me give an example. Originally, we were created by God to exercise dominion over all the earth, to enjoy it, to use it, to... You know, use what's in this earth, not to abuse it, but to use it in a way to find great enjoyment in the things in this earth. To enjoy God's good creation, and as a way of giving praise and glory back to God. But instead of worshiping our creator, we worship created things. We love created things more than our creator God. In an ironic twist of fate, at the end of the day, rather than us exercising control and dominion over uh, this earth, the earth exercises control and dominion over us. That's what death is. Where do we go? In the ground. God says, from dust you came, to dust you shall return. It's the irony, it's the divine irony that even though we were originally made to rule creation creation because of our sin, we end up getting ruled by it. That is an absolutely beautiful picture of what sin is all about, what idolatry leads to, is that we ultimately find ourselves being controlled by this thing. Romans chapter 1 verse 21 to 24 says this, Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds, animals, creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their heart. So Romans chapter 1 basically outlines for us what happened. It's sort of troubleshooting. What happened in this world? How did this world get so bad? Why are people so suspicious of everybody else? Why is everybody trying to kill everybody else? And, you know, why are governors getting shot by some... Not job guys with a gun in their hand and little nine year- old girls dying in a parking lot of a safeway. Why are you know, millions of babies being aborted as today is sanctity of life Sunday? Why does this type of stuff happen in our world today? Really, the Bible's answer to that is what ends up happening is that we exchange rather than being worshipers of God, being in awe of our creator, loving God, we bow our knee and we worship other. Things other than the created God or the Creator of God. We worship His created things over Him. We prefer created things over the true and living God. Rather than exercising passions to worship and love God, we use those same passions and are passionate about other things that are lesser than God. C.S. Lewis was right. That really at the end of the day, it's not that we have too much passion for other things, it's that really we are too far easily satisfied we're too easily satisfied. Rather than finding satisfaction in God and being eternally satisfied, we find satisfaction in things that are not God and we're not satisfied. They make promises that they can't keep and when we fail them, they attack us. That's what ends up happening. So Paul basically outlines it by saying, even though they knew God, they didn't honor God, they didn't give God praise and thanks. Oftentimes, I hear people sometimes say, the real issue with with humanity, with human beings, you and I, is that we have sort of this God-shaped hole in our hearts, and that's the problem. We need it filled by God. I don't think that's accurate enough. I don't think it's explicit enough. The real issue is not that we have this vacuum, this empty void in our hearts. It's just nothing's there. It's just this pure sense of nothingness, and we just just need God. That's not what the Bible describes. In fact, quite to the opposite. The Bible says that the problem with us is not that we have a God-shaped hole in our heart, but that rather we have a God-shaped idol. In our heart. We make other things to worship than God. Rather than worshiping and serving Him, we actually are very skillful at finding something else as an alternative. That's the problem. And so we devote ourselves and our energies and our time and our money and our strength to those t- particular things in the place of God. I'm going to move on very quickly because, again, I mentioned earlier that the real issue in the Bible Is the Bible basically traces back all of the problems in the world, yes, to sin, but sin is sort of a, it's sort of the activity of what ends up happening with idolatry. It's what we do with our idols. Let me give an example. The Old Testament refers to it as idolatry. There's all sorts of passages that refer to idols. The New Testament, you don't read the word idolatry used that often. Paul might use it at periodic times. In fact, John uses it in John chapter 5, verse 21. This tiny little statement at the very end, he finishes his entire letter off by basically saying, my little children, keep yourselves from idols. It's very strange when you read that, because John has not once used the word idol in his entire little book. And then he comes to the very end, the very last sentence of the entire book, he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. So either John's going senile, and he's changing subjects on you at the blink of an eye that make absolutely no connection whatsoever with the rest of what he's been saying, or John is making 100% sense. And I think John is basically referring to that in the book of John, the way that you walk in light, the way that you walk in life, and the way that you walk in truth is by keeping yourself from idols. And the reason why we walk in darkness, the reason why we walk in lies, the reason why we walk in death is because we worship idols. So the Bible actually assumes in the New Testament, idolatry, even though it doesn't use the word a lot. And the word that oftentimes gets used in the New Testament to identify idolatry is not so much idols as much as it is another word that gets used oftentimes, that we oftentimes translate in the English uh, Testaments as lust. It's actually a Greek word that's uh, epithumia. Um, epi means over. Thumia means like uh, desires, cravings, so on and so forth. And epithumia is an over craving, an over Longing and over lust. Okay, so when we think of lust in terms of just sexual lust, uh, we're we're not getting to the heart of what Paul or any of the New Testament writers are trying to write about. And epithumia is what the New Testament writers talk about. Here's a couple examples of that. Uh, James chapter one verse fifteen says, "This lust, when it has conceived, it bears sin." Second Peter chapter one verse four says, "We escape from the corruption that is in this world by lust." So there's something that we escaped from that was connected to this idea of epithumia. First uh, John chapter 2, verse 16 also uses this particular word. And the idea is this, and it's the corollary to the Old Testament idols or idolatry. The idea is this, is that anything that has this overpassion in our hearts, this thing that we devote ourselves to, this thing that we make this primary goal, primary thing in our lives, this thing that we devote time, energy, strength, money, might, Two really is our epithumia it's our the thing that we lust after it's the bible in the old testament's way of saying it's our idol it's the thing that we run to when we're hurting we're going through a hard time and it gives us comfort it's the thing that when we're happy and we celebrate we run to it because it gives us we can celebrate with it it's the thing that's constantly saying to us and speaking to us saying follow me Devote yourself to me. I promise you I will give you this, and yet it never keeps its promises. It's epithumia. The thing that you'll oftentimes discover is that these things that oftentimes become idols in our lives are not necessarily evil things. They're not necessarily like evil things or bad things. Oftentimes, they're actually very good things, but they're things that have a disproportionate level of passion and lust and desire in our hearts for these things. Someone can put it this way. It's taking a good thing and making it a God thing. That's what an idol is. Let me give you a couple examples of this. We move on. It's really the idea that really anything other than Jesus, it's that we turn to. That's going to make us whole or make us justified or bring us ultimate value. Anything other than Jesus that we turn to for those particular things really is an idol. Let me give you a couple examples. One of the things that we oftentimes need to be able to do is become skillful at identifying idols in our lives. And I, and I hate to say it, but this is something we're often really not that good at because sometimes idols are hard to identify. But let me give you a couple examples that might be helpful. But we got to become skillful at being able to identify these things. They are tricky sometimes, but here's the deal. I'll give you an example. I think of someone, like for example, money. Jesus talks about money. He says, money, uh, the love of money is the root of all types of evil. People who love money... Uh, won't be able to enter the kingdom of God. They love money. It's their God. You can't serve God and mammon at the same time. It's the idea of serving God and serving something that's powerful and mo- like money. But let me give you an example. Sometimes it's simply someone looking at someone who has money and saying, oh, they got a lot of money. They got a really nice car. They, dr- they have got a big house. Money must be their idol. You can't often, you, sometimes it takes a little bit harder work to get to try to understand what that really is. Let me give you an example. Why is it that some people who have a lot of money are the stingy rich types. They have a lot of money, but they keep it all to themselves. They never give it away to the poor. They never help out people that are really in desperate need of help. They're not very generous with their church. They're not very giving to other people that are in need. Every bit of money they get, they stuff it into their pockets. Because it's very possible that money is not really their God. What's really their God is that money to them becomes a sense of security. The more money they have, the more security they have. They actually have comfort. And the reason why they don't give it out is because it's like a little child giving away his little security blanket. That blanket is an idol, all right? That blanket is really something that they turn to as comfort. I'm going to press that. But you get the idea that money becomes something that becomes this idol. It's like if you give it away, you don't want to give your God away because you give money away, then you give away your security. You give away your wealth. You give away your ability to find comfort. Other people... They get a lot of money, and they're, they're, they're very, they use their money in a way to go out and buy a new car all the time. They're always having to have the latest gadgets, latest things, you know, always doing something through their house, always spending money, always getting upgrades all the time. Because for them, money may not be their idol. Respect might be. They want to be respected, and they know that the more they have, the more respect and appreciation, and affirmation they're going to get from other people. So money actually becomes a functional savior to get them to their true God, to their true heaven, to the true savior, the true, to the true thing that's going to bring them happiness, hope, peace, joy. All right? Let me give you another example. Some people are kind of bound by approval and affirmation, and their idol really at the end of the day is they, they want to be needed. They need to be needed. They have this craving, this lust, this desire to be needed. Is there anything wrong with being needed? Is there anything wrong with money? Something nothing wrong with money. And there's really nothing wrong with being approved and being needed. But when that becomes an epithumia, and that becomes an overdesire, it drives you, it compels you, and it becomes the main motivation which drives everything about you, then you are no longer free. Let me give you an example. I can think of guys... Probably because I'm a pastor, probably because I've been in ministry for, I don't know, 17, 18 years. I see this a lot. And I'll see guys periodically. In particular, I see this with guys. Guys will come to church. They want to get involved. They want to help out. They want to serve. They want to just devote their time, energy, talents, money, whatever it is, to be involved in the ministry. And guys like me are like, this is awesome. We're always in need of more people to help out. I'm so happy that you're here. This is great. But really, at the end of the day, what I oftentimes kind of have found out in the past, give it a month, two months, maybe even sometimes two years, there's this really weird awkwardness that sort of develops. This person starts like getting bitter. Like, I don't get this. I don't know what's, under- I, don't- I'm trying to- I can't understand what's happening. What the real problem is, is that they want to be approved. They, they, they want to be approved. This epithumia, this drive, this idol to be approved, to be cared for, to be loved, is something that drives them. And when they're, when they're not being approved, when they're not having people recognize them and give them the attention that they want, they get bitter, they get angry. And it's not just simply a, oh, my feelings are hurt, but it's an inordinate amount of anger. Have you met that person? Let me give you an example even from a female and the idea of approval. It's a little bit different with girls, but here's what I've noticed with women. It's oftentimes this idea that they want approval, they want affection, they want somebody to care for them and love them. And so there's nothing wrong with a woman wanting to be loved. I think God created women with that. And God wants godly men to show them the proper amount of affection and affirmation and love. But when a woman has this over-desire, over-passion to be affirmed and loved and cared for, she's willing to do whatever she can to get that, even make sacrifices of giving her body away. Having sex, giving her body away, just so that she can be approved and have affection. I've seen women in relationships and what starts out very exciting they're happy they're stoked their life is just filled with joy because they're being recognized by their boyfriend give it about three months four months maybe even a year they begin to settle into kind of this track and maybe they're not feeling as if the boyfriend's giving them that much affection affirmation love care whatever the case is and it's not just simply you know I'm bummed I wish the relationship was in a little bit different place it's I'm devastated I'm absolutely depressed My life can't go on because, why because? Because maybe you made an idol out of affirmation. And you're not getting it. And when the boyfriend gives it to you, you're happy. When the boyfriend doesn't give it to you, you'd rather die. You sink into depression. My point is that most of our idols are made out of good things that become inordinate desires into god things these are the things that drive us you understand so a person who is driven by affirmation they do interesting things sometimes sometimes inordinate things i'll give you one more final example i heard a guy telling a story he was talking about a guy that in college the guy was sort of like the you know the casanova of the campus Always having sex with girls, good looking guy, tall, dark, handsome, whatever, had money, whatever. And everybody wanted to, you know, have sex with the dude. And so the guy was the type of guy that he can have girls anytime that he wanted. He would have a lot of girls, a lot of sex with a lot of girls. But something interesting happened that after every single time the guy had sex with a girl, he didn't want to go out with him again. He didn't want to see him again, didn't want to talk to him again, didn't want to have phone conversation with him again, didn't want to be seen in public with him again. Completely everything stopped for the guy. The guy ended up becoming a Christian. And he ended up sort of changing his sex ethics. So no longer is he going around having sex with all these girls. But something he discovered is that in Bible studies, this guy wanted to be in control. He was the guy that was always wanting to have the answer. He was wanting to lead. He was wanting to take charge. He was wanting to tell everybody what to do. And in reality, most people could look at this guy and be like, well, sex was really his idol. No, sex was not his idol. Power was his idol. Sex was just the means to get to that. Sex was his functional savior. Sex got him to his heaven. His heaven was power. As long as he was in power, being affirmed, being, being the man in charge, he was, he was okay. The moment that changed, he became bitter, angry, upset, frustrated. So again, see, understand what I'm trying to say? Sometimes identifying idols are a little bit difficult to try to understand. One of the best ways to try to look at and identify idols in our lives is to ask ourselves the questions. What would, be, what would our life be if that thing that we think could bring us hope, happiness, joy, success, um, security, what would happen if that thing was gone? If you're a girl, what would happen if boyfriend was no longer there? If you were a guy and no longer you were recognized in the church, or you weren't given the promotion, or you weren't brought on staff, or you weren't given the raise, or you didn't get into Cal Poly, or you were kicked off the team? What would happen if your business just sort of all of a sudden tanked or your investments that you had bound a lot of money up into was just simply at one point just sort of fell down or the house that you had or the car that you had that you spent all this time investing money, time, energy and treasure into it just all of a sudden crashed and was gone. How would you be? If it was just a regular thing in your life it would be like, ah, it sucks. I like that thing. It's a good car. If it was a thing that had in An epithumia over your life. It was the driving passion over your life. You feel like you want to die. Because it's gone. With no hope of resurrection, it's gone. That's an idol. That's an idol. The next thing. Next assumption. This is heavy. This is like a pin drop moment in here. Like, who wants to talk? All right. Next one is this. The first assumption is that we're all idolaters. Second assumption really is that we're all sinners. Idolatry actually leads us to sin. Uh, Martin, Luther, Martin Luther had a lot of insight on this. I'll, I'll just read this to you and know, move on. He says this, All of those who do not at all times trust God and do not in all their works and sufferings, life and death, trust in his favor, grace and goodwill, but seek his favor in other things or in themselves do not keep his first commandment and practice, they practice real idolatry even if they were to do the works of other commandments, in addition to all the prayers, obedience, patience, chastity, and all the saints combined. Here's what Martin Luther was trying to say. He made this observation that all subsequent Ten Commandments, all the Ten Commandments after the first two, which is shall have no other God before me, and you shall make no other graven image aside from me. He he, he noticed that everything stemmed out of those first two. In other words, we make graven images because we reject God. But when we make graven images, that becomes the chief driving value and passion of our lives. And because it's the chief driving value, passion of our lives that's replaced the true and living God, we're willing to lie to keep that thing in our life. We're willing to commit adultery because we want it. We're willing to steal as long as it would keep us in relationship to our idol. I think Martin Luther was right. In other words, all subsequent sin in our life flows out of the idols that we devote ourselves to. The third thing is this, is that really we are all enslaved because of sin. This kind of brings us back to the original idea that all of us in this world are slaves. The reason why we're slaves is because we sin. The reason why we sin is because we've exchanged the true and living God for false gods. And we worship and serve those things. We devote ourselves to those things. We devote our time, our energy, our talent, our treasure to those things. Because somehow in this exchange, as God making us as being sort of covenant creating people, we're always looking for something to link ourselves up with, to align ourselves up with, to covenant with, to somehow strike a deal or a bargain with. And we hope somehow that by linking ourselves up with this particular entity, it will actually give to us back life. The very interesting irony of the new covenant, which Jesus basically comes to do and say, he says, listen, this new covenant I'm making with you is not you making deals with me, not you making covenants with me. This is me making a covenant with you. That's the gospel. It's God coming saying, I will make a deal with you. I will do something for you that will change your life and will ultimately, inevitably set you free. Romans chapter 1, verse 24 basically says this, Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts. And the idea basically is this is that God just says I will give you over to these things. You will become enslaved to these things. Jesus would put it this way in John chapter 8 verse 34. He says I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is ultimately a slave to sin. You know that sin is not just simply an action, it's a power. It's a power. It's a power. Listen to this great quote from Lord of the Rings because no sermon is totally complete without this. <laughs> Any amens? Amen. (laughs) Says this, but the hearts of men are easily corrupted, and the ring of power has a will of its own. It's so true. That's the whole point. I mean, I don't know if that's true of the ring, like you know. Anyways, the whole idea is that that's what sin does: is it has this will of its own. We slip this idea on this concept on this, this ideology upon our minds, upon our thought process, upon the way that we live, upon the way that we think. And this thing now begins to take a life of its own. But the life that it's taking is not its own. It's our own. It's a parasite. It's living off of us. And it's living and breathing off of us, ultimately destroying us and destroying those around us. This is what spiritual bankruptcy is all about. This is what spiritual slavery is all about. This is why idolatry is radically destructive. Not just to individuals, but the cultures and societies in the world. This is what Jesus came to save us from. Sin because of idolatry, Sin that leads to slavery. This is why Jesus is so great. Because he comes as a deliverer to set us free. Because the only way that we can be freed, which is the last real question I wanna ask, is how are we freed? Is we need somebody outside of us. Somebody who has not been corrupted by the system. Somebody who is untainted. Somebody who is pure. Somebody who is holy. Somebody who sees things perfectly. Somebody who can actually give us light, life, and liberty. And this is what Jesus is. He's not of this world. He comes into this world from heaven to rescue us who are slaves to sin because of the idolatry of our hearts. This is why the gospel is such good news. Because we are powerless to set ourselves free. And God acting on our behalf, initiating something absolutely phenomenal that we never deserved, but based upon his love to set us free. I was helped a lot through teaching him a guy by the name of Tim Keller, and he says there's basically three ways in which oftentimes people address freedoms of slavery. The first way is he describes as the moralizing effect. The moralizing effect basically says this. You're a sinner, you failed, stop sinning, and start doing good. And the problem is, is it doesn't go far enough. The question that really needs to be asked is, why do you sin the sin that you're sinning? It doesn't go deep enough. The moralizing effect, it just basically says, stop being a sinner and be good. I would go so far as to say, this is the message that most churches in America preach. It's the moralizing gospel. It basically says, you failed, guys are a little bit frustrated with you, but at the same time, you need to stop sinning and start being good. This is the way that, in a lot of ways, I lived my Christian life for many, many years. I had this mentality that Jesus saved me, the gospel set me free, but now that I'm a Christian, now that I've trusted Jesus, what I need to do now is I need to work really hard really hard to serve God, to love God with all my heart, to read the Bible diligently, to pray diligently, to do all these things in my own effort and strength. That's the way that I thought the gospel worked. That's the way I thought church was all about. The problem is, is it leads to even more bondage. Because if that's the way that you think, the way that you move forward in what we would call your sanctification, becoming more like God, is by you trying really, really hard, then you will find yourself in a new form of slavery. It's just a baptized version of slavery that has Christian nomenclature, Christian terminology, Christianese, and you walk around with a silly Christian t-shirt. The point of the matter is, moralism, the moralizing effect, does not change you. It just simply tells you what you're doing wrong. The second way he describes is the psychologizing effect which basically moves away from recognizing sin, repenting from things, because that's negative. We don't want negativity. That's the problem. We're too negative. What we need to do is we need to know that we're loved, that God deeply, deeply loves us, and what you need to do is not repent from things. What you need to do is realize that you're loved. The problem is with that is it never really, again, addresses the issues of sin, or even worse yet, the idols that underlie underneath our sin. The reason why we sin is because somewhere underneath our sinning are idols that we're seeking to serve or that we're serving, that we're devoted to. Let me give you an example. Let's say you're struggling with a particular sin. Why that sin? Why that sin? Why not another 50 million other sins? Why is it that sin that you're dealing with? Maybe it's because there's an idol underneath that that's governing you. Inferiority, security issues. Let's say you're the micromanaging type of person and you want to control everything. And you break relationships, you ruin relationships because you're always wanting to be in control. You're telling people what to do, you boss everybody. If you work at a company or a job, you're a manager, you're an owner or something, and you tell everybody what to do, and you're always rude and horrible and up, you know, disrespectful to people, and you're a micromanaging type of person that's always trying to be in control. Is it possible that it's not just simply the fact that you have a loud mouth or you are a particular type of race, whatever, that maybe the real issue that is underneath all of that is that you have this unbelievable fear of not being in control, and so the way that you overcompensate is you want to be in control. In other words, you're trying to be omnipotent. God wants to be omnipotent. Your idol is power. So it's not just simply repenting from the sin It's repenting from the idol that is dictating or leading or controlling the sin and sinful attitude that's at the heart. The final approach is the gospel approach, which basically says this, you need to not just simply address the sin, but again, like I said, the idol underneath it, but then finally, ultimately know and believe that God loves you. So it's repentance from the idolatry that plagues us, that leads us to becoming slaves, but then trusting, believing the fact that we're loved because God demonstrated it on the cross. The last thing is this, is really what is life like now that we have God? Galatians chapter four, verse eight through 11 says this. I'm done. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those things which were by nature not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or are rather known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of this world? Here's what Paul's saying. Is that at one point, before you knew God, you are a slave to all these sins. You are a slave to idols. But now that you know God, he set you free. We just read a couple weeks ago that part of that freedom means that God will justify you. He will wash away your sins. He will cleanse you of your sin. But even better than that, he says, I'll make you my son and daughter. I will adopt you. You know, my family, how great is the love of God? Not so much that it just would justify your sin, but it would adopt you as a sinner bring you into God's family. This is how great and deep the love of God is for you. But the reality is, is that what ends up happening, what happened to the Galatian people is they were being willing to go back into another type of religious legalism. The religious people today were basically saying, we're Jews, here's what you need to do. If you really want to be close to God, you need to keep the Sabbath, you need to live according to these particular rules and laws, which might have been Passover, Yom Kippur, some of these other holidays that they kept. And again, you know, let me just say this. There's nothing wrong with keeping Passover. I think it's fine. I think it's totally fine for Christians to keep it. But when that becomes the means by which others would say, if you really want to be right with God, you've got to keep Passover, that's where you're entering into the error of the Galatians. That's when you're yoking yourself, strapping yourself up, straightjacketing yourself into a form of religious legalism, which Paul basically says is the same type of power as paganism. You hear that? It's so powerful because Paul's basically saying, look, you might be baptizing it or sanitizing it in religious terminology, but it's just as bad as demonic paganism. These people weren't walking away from Jesus in the sense of theology, they were walking away from Jesus in terms of practice. They weren't walking away and losing their salvation. They were entering into a new type of bondage and slavery. Let me finish with this thought. I'm going to have Evan coming up, and we'll close in some worship. I want you to think about this. A lot of churches in America have sort of this, can sometimes have this mentality. And I hear it all the time because I talk to so many different people that are Christians, young Christians, not Christians. One of the common themes I often have here is people will say, you know, it seems like so many churches I go to, or I've been to, or I've been around over my life, tend to have this mentality where it's, it's not really good news. It seems like there's a lot of like control issues. People use religion to control people. These are the accusations that much of the world levels against Christianity and Christians. Is there any truth to it? And the answer is absolutely yes. We shouldn't you know, run away from that and be like, no, 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 we've got to protect Christianity. No, the reality is we've got to expose idols. But the reality is oftentimes one of the reasons why certain groups of people can be very uh, legalistic or certain groups of people can be oppressive or you can describe certain types of churches as being very oppressive is it basically goes back to this idea is that there's a slavery thing going on, just like this type of slavery that happened back in the day of the Galatians. It can trace it upstream to the next natural thing, which is sin, but sin oftentimes is there because of an idol. Let me give you an example of the way this works oftentimes in modern-day Christian churches. If, for example, a church has as its central driving, focus, passion, idol as tradition, If somebody younger comes in and says, I love Jesus, I want to meet Jesus, do I have to wear my hair up in a bun? And the answer is, of course you have to wear your hair up in a bun because it's in the Bible, or at least in our bylaws. And the reality is, is like, for one, it's not in the Bible. For two, that's a tradition. There's nothing wrong with wearing your hair like that. That's cool if you want to wear it that way. But the moment that becomes this sense of like, we've got to keep to our tradition, we've got to follow what our founding fathers of our tradition, of our denomination established 500 years ago, we have to keep things the way they are. What you've done is you've brought people into a spiritual slavery. where Girls, for example, aren't free to wear their hair in a way that they want to wear their hair because of some sort of silly tradition that has literally trumped Jesus. Tradition has trumped Jesus. It is the driving sacred cow. Over that whole entire thing. And Jesus says, I I, I want to be the Lord of the church. Not a tradition. Nothing wrong with traditions. Traditions, just like anything else, need to be bent over at the feet of Jesus. The way that you deal with idols is not just simply cast them off and throw them away. You recognize them and you bring them into the Lordship of Christ. For example... If relationships are idols, you don't break yourself off and go live on an island and say, well, I just need to scourge myself for the rest of my life and not have friends ever again. (laughs) I'm dealing with my idols. You're really not dealing with your idols. You're just going to replace another idol. Because now that you're all by yourself, you're going to find something else. You're going to make a coconut your God. All right? (laughs) You're not really dealing with the root issue. You've got to deal with the root issue. And the root issue is saying, I will call it what it is, and I will confess it to Jesus, and I will lay it at his feet and I will submit myself to the lordship of Christ and serve only him. That's what we do with idols. We cast them down at his feet. We confess them before him, and we call out to Jesus. That's what Paul wants us to do. The church needs to be living with this reality of being close to Christ. When Christ is not our main central focus, and tradition, and what other traditions might be? I mean, there's traditionalists, and then there are non-traditional, traditionalists, right? A lot of modern-day Christian churches are like, we're all anti-tradition. Like, that's cool, but don't make that a sacred cow. You know, truly free people, there are other people I know that are like, you know what, I can only worship and serve God if it has a type of, contemporary type of worship music. It's like, you know, anything played off an organ is demonic, and I just, it's, it's not from God. And therefore, I will stay away from Christians that do that, or Christians that live that way, and I can't have any fellowship with them. You know what you're doing? You're bound. You're bound. You just impose another controlling factor over your life. Freedom should say, I can worship with anybody. I don't care if they have an organ or blue hair. I can worship with them because they love Jesus. Jesus is Lord, He's the final authority. It doesn't matter if it's the technique or the method that I particularly like or the style that I find favorable to myself. At the end of the day, Jesus is the center of this all. It doesn't matter if they're old people, young people, rich people, poor people you know, bound, free, whoever they are. If Jesus is the center of it all, there is a unity there. That's what God intended to do. But when anything else trumps Christ, there will always be inevitably division because God's idols always dictate and control us. When we become their slaves as they're our masters. Every false god always makes promises to us that they never keep and when we fail them they mock us and control us more only god is the god that when he makes promises he always keeps them and when we fail him he forgives us that's the gospel that's what god has done for you that becomes the greatest motivator To bend our knee to this good God. Who's the only master. That doesn't control us. And manipulate. And take away. He's the only master. That lays his life down for us. Sacrifices himself for us. Doesn't take our life. He gives his life for us. I want to finish this up right now. Just simply ask. If there's anybody here right now. You feel like. That's me. That's me. I got idols. I need to deal with them right now. No fanfare. I don't you stand right where we're at? All I want to do is pray for you. Anybody. Whether you're a Christian, you're not a Christian, if you're here, you're not a Christian, just, I, I, that's me. I got issues in my life, idols in my life that have not been God, the true and living God. I want someone to pray for me. It's cool. You guys are awesome. It's hard sometimes to do that, but the reality is, is that this, this, what, you, what you're doing right now is you're basically saying, I recognize there are, there are controlling things in my life that I need to confess and repent from and turn back to Jesus um, let's do this how about each of you guys maybe just lay hands on people around you and uh, I'm going to pray for you guys there's a lot of you too, I was going to originally probably have all you guys kind of pray with each other so a lot of you guys I just want to pray for you guys and then we're going to worship we're going to actually give our tithes and our offerings to the Lord to give joyfully We'll partake of communion, we'll sing because of what God's done for us. But let's first of all acknowledge our idols, confess them, and turn back to Jesus. God, we, we thank you right now that your word has this ability of uh, illuminating, shining light in areas that oftentimes don't ever get the light of day. God, we want to hide from these things oftentimes because we're ashamed. We're ashamed to even admit or confess these things because oftentimes God, uh, our our passions, our desires for these things just are, are things that we're ashamed of. That's why we couch them. That's why we hide them. That's why we decorate them. Rather than confess them. God, that's, that's the one thing that we need to do is confess them to get to the root of these things and lay them at your feet to bend our knee before you, Lord Jesus, just confess you as our Savior, as the one truly that loves us, that cares for us, that is the one true only master that doesn't manipulate, control, and take our life our life you're the one true master that lays his life down for us and God in turn we love you we thank you and we want to give our lives to you we want to give back to you worship and praise it ties our offerings as we partake of communion God that we would remember the fact that the reason why that we have been set free is simply because of the cross it's the cross that has enabled our liberty our freedom God, help us now to respond and worship and love. Pray for my brothers and sisters here, God. The specific things in their lives that they're dealing with. Help them, God, right now. Just to call upon you and cast these things down before you. Trusting in their God that bought them, saved them, and set them free. That they wouldn't return to another yoke of bondage but that they would keep their hearts standing firm in Christ. God, for us, at the end of the day, that's what we want. Uh, We want purity. We don't want to be defiled. We don't want to feel filthy. We don't want to be dehumanized. You God, that's where most of us oftentimes find ourselves. Sin dehumanizes us, it makes us filthy, our hearts break, we feel trapped, we feel broken, we suffer, and those around us in our lives suffer. And at the end of the day, God, we don't, we don't experience life and joy that you created us to experience. We need a deliver God, the path to righteousness and holiness is not by trying harder. It's not by just simply isolating one portion of your, who you are, a characteristic trait of who you are and neglecting the rest. It's not found by being religious or in religious leaders. It's not found by us trying extra hard. The one path, God, to being made right is Jesus. He is the path to God. God, we want to fix our eyes on Jesus. We want to look to Jesus. We want to keep him central in our lives, central in this church, central in our mission, central in our jobs, central in our families, central in every sphere of our lives. When he's not, we find an alternative God to sit in his place. And that God destroys, defiles, and breaks everything when you made us for freedom. So God, I pray right now that you would just help us to trust and look at the great news, the good news of what Jesus has done for us. God, that moves us, it compels us, it becomes a new motivation, becomes a mo- motivation that's not based on coercion or fear religious duty it's a motivation based on absolute love we love you we're loved by God we're we know God and we're known by God and God that is the most liberating thing to live in a spirit knowing that we're incredibly loved because of the cross because of what you did God drove us to the cross the cross points us back to that unbelievably strong sense of the love of God. So God, sent us out of here right now, like a bunch of missionaries, hundreds of missionaries leaving this place, scattering all up and down the Central Coast, proclaiming this really good news that we have a God that actually sets free and doesn't bind, a God that cleans and purifies and doesn't defile, a God that gives life and doesn't take life. God that lays his life down and not forces us to lay our lives down at the expense of empty promises. God, we thank you for the cross. We want to boast in that. We want to exalt you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, God bless you guys. Have a great week. We'll see you.